Let's take our Bibles again this morning and let's turn to Luke chapter 24. And I'll read verses 44 through 49 of Luke chapter 24. Remember that the setting here is the visit that Jesus made to the disciples on the night after he rose. It was the first day of the week, Sunday. I guess we could say it was the first Lord's Day. And we begin in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Amen. Well, let's pray together and ask God for his blessing upon the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ and that you did indeed raise him from the dead on that first day of the week. And we thank you that today we can worship you still on the first day of the week. We thank you that though in some ways we are hindered, we are not hindered and we are not prevented from worshiping you. And so we bless you for that. Help us, though we're not in our usual setting, to nevertheless worship in spirit and truth. And may Christ be glorified through all that is said. And may your people receive your word with meekness and readiness, knowing that it is the implanted word that is able to save our souls. And may we prove to be hearers of, not only hearers of the word, but also doers of that. And we especially pray that for all the unconverted who are hearing the words that I will preach this morning, but also the words that every faithful gospel preacher throughout this earth will be preaching on this Lord's Day. Let it be the occasion of many, many sinners being brought to salvation through Jesus Christ and his gospel. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Well, I'm continuing what I've begun already in this section of Luke 24, verses 44 through 49, making my way slowly uh, through these, this last section of Luke's Gospel, and you may recall that the title I gave to this brief paragraph is Jesus, the Disciples, and the Scriptures. And we saw, first of all, that Jesus reminds the disciples of some things. That was verse 44. 
Then Jesus enlightens the disciples in verse 45. It says he opened their understanding. And then thirdly, Jesus commissions the disciples. And of course, the connection with the Scriptures is that he reminded the disciples that the things they'd experienced in the recent days were things that were foretold in the Scriptures. When he enlightened the disciples, it says in verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And then in this commission, which comes in verses 46 through 49, the connection there is also that what they were going to go and preach was contained in the Scriptures of the Old Testament, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, verse 46. And also, their mission was foretold in verse 47, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name to all nations. So we're focusing now on the commission of the disciples in verses 46 to 49. We've seen already the message in verses 46 and 47, what the, the apostles would have to go out and proclaim. And today we're going to focus on the messengers. That's in verse 48. Next time it'll be the power in verse 49. And the outline for the message, we began... Uh, last time we focused on the message. We saw its prophetic origin, its content, and its worldwide extent. Today, verse 48, the messengers. I'll read verse 48 again. It says, And you are witnesses of these things. Just a very brief statement there. In the original, depending which Greek version you have, some don't have the conjunction there, and. So if they don't have the conjunction, and, it's just three words in the original. You are witnesses of these things. It's the word you, it's the word witnesses, and then it's the word these things in the genitive. That's it. Three verses. That's all we're going to have today. Um, I was thinking to myself that am I just purposely preaching on smaller and smaller portions as the weeks go by here so I don't have to finish Luke's gospel? I'm sure that is part of it, but it's subconscious. Uh, This is really an important section. It didn't hit me until I got into this last paragraph here, how significant the words are and how they tie together so many things that we find in Luke's gospel account. So they're to be witnesses of these things, that is especially of the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the things that they had experienced in the days leading up to this encounter they had with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So as we see, uh, look at the messengers today, we're going to notice a couple of things. First of all, we're going to notice what they are. And that is that they are witnesses, the messengers, what they are. They are messengers. And then the second thing we're going to notice is uh, who they are. And we'll consider the original witnesses, especially the apostles, and then the present-day witnesses, which is present-day Christians, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the messengers, first of all, what they are, they are witnesses. Jesus says, you are are witnesses of these things. 
They're witnesses. That is, they are people who saw something, and then they were to go out and tell what they saw. That's what a witness is. Now, the Greek word witness is also the word from which we get the word in the English language, martyr. In fact, it's just a transliteration of the Greek word, martyr. And the word martyr, or martyr in the Greek, means witness. But it's also been applied by Christian writers to those people who suffer in their testimony of the truth of the gospel. They suffer to the point of death. And there's biblical precedent for that. Paul, in his testimony about how God saved him, spoke about Stephen, God's faithful witness, in Acts chapter 22. And Stephen was the first martyr. And that word there, witness, which is transliterated, martyr, is applied to Stephen talking about his death. And then there are two places in the book of Revelation where the word is used as well to speak about faithful witnesses who are also those who suffered death for the sake of their testimony to Jesus Christ. They suffered death in persecution. But I just want to pass by that. We'll come back to that theme a little bit later. But that's not the base meaning of the word witness. It's someone who sees something and then testifies to it. And so let's turn to a few passages to open up this concept a little bit. First of all, let's go over to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here we have a letter written by one of the men who was in the room that night, one of the sons of Zebedee, the beloved apostle John. And John is writing at the beginning of his first epistle here, and this whole concept of witness comes out very clearly. It stuck in his mind what Jesus said on that night. Here's what John wrote at the beginning of his first epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. It reminds us very much of the beginning of John's gospel, doesn't it? Who is he talking about when he says, that which was from the beginning? Well, it reminds us of John 1, verse 1. When it says that the Word was in the beginning with God. And he uses that same word, Word, to talk about Jesus Christ as he used in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh. He's talking about Jesus Christ here, the one who was from the beginning and became flesh. Well, notice what he says in verse 1. We have heard his words with our own ears. We have seen him with our own eyes. We've looked upon him. Our hands handled him. His hands handled him that night, didn't they? When Jesus said, touch my side and my hands. And then verse 2, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Some scholars say that John likely wrote that epistle as late as A.D. 90, so upwards of 60 years after this incident in Luke 24 when Jesus appeared after he rose from the dead and spoke to the apostles and some of the other disciples. He had lived a life of being a faithful witness Legend has it, or church tradition has it, that John was the one and the only one of the twelve apostles who did not die a death of martyrdom. And part of the reason he lived so long. But he had been a faithful witness all those years, and he had witnessed his friends and fellow apostles, many of whom had gone the way of martyrdom by this time. But here's what he was doing, testifying about Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he says there in verse 3 at the beginning. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. That's what he was doing as a witness. And that's what Jesus was telling the apostles and other disciples that night, that they were to be witnesses. In fact, let's turn back to John's gospel for just a couple of other examples of John the apostle and his bearing witness to Jesus Christ chapter 19, verses 34 and 35, first of all. John here is writing about something that he saw with his own eyes, and he's underscoring that reality here in John 19. This was the the account of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is after Jesus had already died. And we read in verse 34... Well, I'll start in verse 33 since I mentioned that he had already died. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. So John was very conscious for all of his years as an apostle of what Jesus had said on this night. You are witnesses. As I said, the English word martyr comes from that Greek word. But the Greek word for witness, the noun, also has a verb form, and that is testified. And that's what John is saying here. He who has seen has testified. And then another noun derived from that same word is testimony. And it says, and his testimony is true. So you see what John is doing here. He's saying that he was doing what Jesus said on that night he was supposed to do. He saw Jesus crucified and he's writing about it. He's telling people. He's telling us. He saw a spear go into Jesus' side to prove that he had really died. And he's testifying about it. And he does a similar thing regarding the resurrection in chapter 20, the next chapter of John, in verse 20. We read, and this is something that happened, it's the account of the same night and the same events that we're looking at in Luke 24. It's just John's own account of it. Jesus came into the room, we're told, in verse 19. He said, peace be with you. And then verse 20, now when he had said this, He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
That's the same thing we saw back in Luke 24, verses 39 and 40. Jesus showed them his hands inside. That convinced the disciples that Jesus really was raised from the dead. John had earlier seen the empty tomb. We're told he believed. It was the beginning of his faith that Christ was raised from the dead. But now he really was convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. He saw him risen with his own eyes. He's testifying to us in his gospel. That's what Jesus was saying. You are men who have seen these things. You're to go out and tell others. You're to go out and tell the world. What were they to tell the world? That Jesus died and that he rose. They were not to go out and preach some kind of um, self-help message. Not some kind of uh, power of positive thinking like Norman Vincent Peale became famous for proclaiming. Norman Vincent Peale didn't believe these were real events. The apostles knew they were. And Jesus said, you're witnesses because you saw these things and now you're supposed to go tell others. Tell others about real things that happened here in Palestine, here in Jerusalem, there on Golgotha, here in this upper room. You saw me risen from the dead. That's what they were to tell. And so that's the first thing about being witnesses, that they were to go out and tell about historical events. In fact, let's look at Acts chapter 1, another passage that comes to bear on this matter of the apostles being witnesses. Acts chapter 1, and it's verse 22. We'll come to this passage. Well, let me, let me read verses 20 to 22 so we get the whole thing here, the whole statement. This is after the, uh, Jesus had ascended into heaven and the apostles were there in Jerusalem. And they were in that upper room together, 120 of the disciples. And we read, for it is written in the book of Psalms, this is after Judas had died, we read in the book of Psalms, it says, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. And the apostles understood that to apply to Judas, who just previously in the account were told he had killed himself because of the great guilt he felt over his crime of delivering up the Lord Jesus after he betrayed him. And then we read in verses 21 and 22, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. I'm going to go on to say that all Christians are witnesses of Jesus. But there's a special group of men that were witnesses of the resurrection. And they're called apostles. And that's why sometimes we like to use the phrase capital A apostles. There were 12 of them. And when Judas killed himself, there were only 11. They said there needed to be another. And so there were other disciples who had been around Jesus, followed him in Galilee and in other travels that he made. They said there were some who were with them all the while, from the time Jesus was baptized till the time he rose from the dead. And they saw him baptized and they saw him risen. 
So some would have been in the room that night in Luke 24. And they were to become witnesses as well. What's the point? They saw Jesus risen from the dead. They saw him put to death on the cross. They knew that he was dead. They weren't just going out and preaching a message about being happy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. They were preaching about historical events that happened. Many scholars, unbelieving scholars, I call them, emphasize tradition when they write about the Gospels or talk about the Gospel accounts. And what they mean when they say that is that there are things that the church maybe made up or they, they read back into the history and the things they wrote then became the things they believed and wanted to tell other th- people to believe, even though they're not based in historical reality. Well, that is not what John thought when he wrote about things that he handled and things that he saw and things that he heard with his own ears from the Word of God incarnate. And that's not what Luke thought either when he wrote. I'll take you back once again to the beginning of his gospel. And remember what the Apostle Luke or the disciple Luke who wrote under the direction of the Apostles said there in Luke chapter 1 at the very beginning of his gospel account. He said, "...inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word delivered them to us." Luke did not think he was making things up for the church to believe. He understood he was passing along things that he had heard from others who were faithful witnesses and who, by the way, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. They preached the Word of God that was based on the historical events that happened, Jesus' death and resurrection. The commentator Daryl Bach wrote it this way. He said, they have seen what Jesus did, these disciples there in that upper room on that night. They have seen what Jesus did, and they have heard him open up the scripture. Their faith is not just an ethic or a morality. In other words, just a good way to live. It is the testimony of God's activity in history. Through Jesus, God personally reaches out to humankind in these events. What events? Christ's death and Christ's resurrection from the dead. Things that really happened. As we looked in recent weeks at 1 Corinthians 15, at the beginning of that chapter, Paul says, this is the gospel, the message that saves sinners. And the heart and soul of it is historical events that actually happened. The death and burial of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fact that he was seen by upwards of 500 disciples. And first and foremost by the apostles themselves. The witnesses par excellence to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like we sing in one of our hymns, we did not see Jesus walking in Nazareth. We didn't see him get baptized. We didn't see him uh, healing people. We didn't see him walking on the water. 
We didn't see him hanging on the cross or rising from the dead. But we believe that these things happened. Why? In part because there are many very credible witnesses who did see him. And writers like John and Luke who wrote about it. Many people dismiss the Bible and they think it's, they can just dismiss what the Bible says and they don't have to look at it as the Word of God because so many people twist it to make it say whether they want, like Norman Vincent Peale did, or like unbelieving scholars as I, that I mentioned say. I remember a man, before I, I left the place I worked and went to seminary and began to study for the ministry, one of the guys at work said, that as some guy, other men were talking about the Bible, some Christian in my place of work was trying to witness for Jesus Christ, and one guy just said, ah, that's their interpretation of the Bible. And so many people just dismiss the Bible because so many people interpret it in so many different ways. And that's a sad truth, and it does turn people away from the truth. But if that's your attitude, yeah, you know, there's so many different interpretations that you therefore don't regard the Bible as the Word of God and you don't worry about spending any time studying it for that reason. I would say this. The important thing is, no matter how many different interpretations there are of the Bible, the most important thing is that you find out what the proper interpretation of it is that you wrestle with the Scriptures themselves in what the Word of God actually says, because it actually is the Word of the living God. Other people simply believe, skeptics, who say that the Bible is just a bunch of myths. Or maybe you heard this in, in college, when you were in college. It's just a bunch of hopeless contradictions. Nobody should believe any of it. I would urge you to do a thorough study of the Bible. Be like the man that I spoke about a few weeks ago who wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. He was a, a criminal investigator. And he applied the tools of his trade, the science of how you try to look at a crime scene and figure out, figure out who did it. He applied that to the Bible and the man became a Christian. Or I think I've mentioned in the past, maybe in an earlier uh, time, uh, preaching through the Gospel of Luke, a man named Sir William Ramsey, a scholar of the 19th century, late part of the 19th century. He was an archaeologist, and he was an atheist, and he wanted to prove that the Bible was not true. He was convinced the Bible was just a myth. So he headed an expedition into Asia Minor and Palestine, where he was going to prove that the Bible was not true. It was simply fabricated. His view was it was just the product of, of some monks who had some extra time in a monastery somewhere during the Middle Ages. And he was going to go out and prove that. And so he thought he was going to start at the soft underbelly of the Bible. He thought the weakest spot in the whole New Testament was this very writer's account of Paul's travel in the book of Acts. 
Luke wrote Luke's Gospel and he wrote Acts. So Ramsey thought that's the easiest place to disprove the Gospel and to show that there's nothing historical about it. So he went after it like a good scholar should. And he was researching for 15 years. And at the end of that, he published a volume. And it was entitled, St. Paul, the Traveler and the Roman Citizen. Sounds like he believed that Paul was a real guy, didn't he? And that he was a, a, a man who traveled in many places, because he studied those places. And that he was really a Roman citizen, like Luke said he was in the book of Acts. And when William Ramsey wrote that account, he wrote not as an atheist or even as a skeptic. He wrote as a believer and an apologist. Why? Because during the course of his studies, he became convinced of the accuracy of the book of Acts. And in his request, in his, his, and in his quest to refute the Bible, he discovered many facts which confirmed the accuracy of the book of Acts. And he concluded that Luke's account of the events and the setting of Paul's travels were exact, even in the smallest detail. He wrote this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. And I'm not guaranteeing that if you honestly and diligently study the Bible that you will be saved. Because you won't be saved unless the Holy Spirit of God opens your eyes. But I am challenging you to back up your convictions. If you believe that the Bible is not the Word of God, I'm challenging you to back up your unbelief and back up your claims about what is true or not true, not for the sake of your reputation as a respected, intellectually aware person, but do it for the sake of your soul. And young people, listen to me, don't sacrifice your soul because unbelief seems more sophisticated than the belief of your Christian parents or the people in the church that you attend. Don't sacrifice your soul to be respected intellectually. Unbelief has always been more intellectually respectable. It was in the first century, and it still is today. But don't sacrifice your soul. So there's the messengers. That's what they are, witnesses. But then secondly, let's notice who they are, who they are. And we'll look at the original witnesses and, as I said, the present-day witnesses. First of all, the original witnesses. Who are they? Well, let's consider first their identity and then the implications of that. First of all, it's those men that were chosen and officially sent by Jesus as his witnesses. Hand-picked men. 
And as you've already seen, and as you know, there were 12 of them called apostles. Look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 13 for a moment. We're told in verse 12 that there was one time in Jesus' ministry in Galilee that he went out to a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And then verse 13, And when it was day, he called his disciples to him, and from them he chose twelve whom he named apostles. And then it gives us the list. Judas was included there, the last one, Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. These were men who were handpicked by Jesus He thought through it as a man, prayed through it. But they were the men that were designated, we could say, from all eternity to be his apostles. Back we saw in Acts chapter 1 how important it was that there be 12 of these. We're told in the book of Revelation about the 12 apostles. Just like there were 12 tribes of Israel, a significant number. They were the main witnesses of the Lord Jesus. It was important that there be 12. We read it in Acts chapter 1 already that because one killed himself, the traitor Judas, who was never a believer, that there needed to be a twelfth, and so they chose the, the twelfth apostle to stand in his place. That's who these men were, the original witnesses, the twelve apostles. Well, what are the implications of that for us? If there were twelve apostles, men who were hand-picked by Jesus to be witnesses and to give this authoritative testimony, well, that is the implication for us, their authority. When they spoke, they were authoritative. Their testimony was authoritative. As I said, the Greek Greek word for testimony is the same root word that you have for witness. A witness gives testimony. What is the testimony of the apostles to us? Well, the testimony of the apostles to us is our New Testament. That's their testimony. Turn with me to chapter 10 for a moment. Luke chapter 10 and verse 16. If someone's an apostle of the Lord Jesus, we have to put great weight on his testimony. We read in chapter 10 of Luke and verse 16. It's in this chapter that Jesus sent out 70 disciples to go preach. And Jesus says this, He who hears you hears me. And he who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The apostles were to take very seriously the testimony they were to give in Jesus' name. Because Jesus says, if, if people will receive you, it's, they're receiving me. And if they receive me, they're receiving my Father. And similarly, if they reject you, they're rejecting me. And if they reject me, they're rejecting God the Father. They are authoritative witnesses about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said something similar in John chapter 13, verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He sends all Christians, we could say. But Jesus was especially speaking those words in John 13 to the apostles. And he speaks of them as those whom he sent. And that's the word that apostles, that's the word um, 
That's what the word apostles means, those who are sent by the Lord Jesus. And so we need to think about the apostles as men who are authoritative, and there's no higher authority than they. Now there is. There's Christ, and there's God the Father. But remember what Jesus said. He said, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He was putting the apostles on the par with himself. It's one reason I don't like what I call the red-letter mentality. I don't even like red-letter Bibles, frankly. I will admit, when I'm preaching sometimes, it's easy to look down and say, that's where Jesus' words were, and I don't have to hunt around the page. But I don't like the idea, because why do we have letters with red letter, Bibles with red letters in them? Isn't it kind of saying that these are the really important words because they were said by Jesus himself? Isn't Jesus saying to the apostles that if you write them, it's as if I have written them myself? If you say them with your apostolical authority, it's as if I said them myself. They are the same. And so that's why we look at the New Testament and we give it the same authority as the Old Testament. When the the prophets of the Old Testament stood and they said, Thus saith the Lord, we take that as the very word of God. And when the apostles wrote what they've written in the New Testament, we take that as the very word of God. Jesus, uh, I should say, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that these are the words of God which he has written. And it says if you take away from these words, then God will take away from you. If you add to these words, God will add to you the curses written in this book. And that's the same thing we see at the end of the book of Revelation about the New Testament and the words of the apostles. Well, let me just, before I go on then from this point, give you a few specific implications. The general implication of the fact that the apostles are Jesus' witnesses here, they're the original witnesses, is that their words are authoritative for us. But here are a few specific implications, applications for us. We should ask the question then, as Christians here in the New Testament age, what constitutes the gospel? We should look to the Scriptures to determine that, the writings of the apostles. Like I said last week, it includes repentance. So we don't ask when we're going to go out to preach the gospel, what do most people say the gospel is nowadays? Probably wouldn't include repentance if we asked the question that way. Or we don't ask what is acceptable to people. We probably wouldn't include repentance if we asked that question. Or what will draw more people to our church? We wouldn't preach so much about sin or about repentance, would we? We ask, what constitutes the gospel? We have to look to the writings of the apostles, the New Testament. Or if we ask the question, how should I live as a Christian? Again, we look to the writings of the apostles. And we ask, what have they told us? And we see that they've told us things like, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And we have to preach holiness. And we have to live holy lives. And we ask, what did they say about um, rituals like circumcision? And they said something like this, 1 Corinthians 7, 19, the Apostle Paul's words, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but obedience to God's commandments is what matters. 
We look to the New Testament and the words of scriptures. They tell us how we should live as Christians. Or if we ask the question, how should I order my home as a Christian? Again, we go to the writings of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Hoffmeyer started preaching on that last Lord's Day. I trust we'll hear more tonight. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. It tells us how to order our homes. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents, bring your children up in the chastening and admonition of the Lord. Don't ask, what does the world do or what does the world accept? Look to the New Testament, the Scriptures. How should we live and how should we order things in Christ's church? Who can belong to the church of Christ? Who can lead in the church of Christ? What should the church's government look like? How do we worship? How, did we do, how do we do everything we do in the life of the church? In all these things, regarding all these questions, we should say with Isaiah, in Isaiah 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. Or we can say to the New Testament law and testimony, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We should be always asking, what does God's Word say? And that's the basic duty of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to submit to Christ and His rule through the Scriptures and through the writings of His holy apostles, His witnesses that He's given to us. It's just like we heard last Sunday evening, as the church is subject to Christ. We could tie it all up I can tie it all up by quoting from Matthew 28, verse 20, in Matthew's account of Jesus' great commission. It says, he, taught, he said, you are to go out and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And the all things that he has commanded include more than just what we have recorded in red letters in the Gospels. More than just Jesus' words in the Gospels. It's all the teaching of the New Testament because the apostles are authorities for us because they were made authorities by Jesus himself. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 36 and 37. He said, Or did the word of God come originally from you, the people of the church in Corinth? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So that's the implications for us about those original witnesses. So we're looking at who these witnesses are. First, the original witnesses, it's the apostles. Second, the present day or ongoing witnesses. So let's do the same thing we did with the apostles, the original witnesses. Let's consider their identity, and then let's consider the implications for us. So first of all, their identity. And the identity of the ongoing witnesses is that it's the church of Christ, as I said. It's, it's us. Or if you want to be grammatically correct, it is we. 
the church of the Lord Jesus, believers in Christ today. There are things that are true of the apostles that do not extend to us. We are not prophets like they were. They were those who received words from God to give to others, direct revelation. We're not like they are in that sense. Remember how Jesus said that he was going to send the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 and he was going to lead them into all truth and he was going to remind them, taking quotes from verse, uh, chapters 14 and 16, he was going to lead them into all the truth and he was going to remind them of the things that they had heard even while he was with them. The Spirit of God was going to do that for the apostles in a way that he's not doing it for us. We're not prophets like they are, and we are not the authors of scriptures the way they were. And that's why I'm extremely uncomfortable when people call themselves apostles nowadays. And you should be as well. You say, but I think they're good Christians. And you find out what they mean by apostles. You find out if they know what the scripture says apostles are. We don't, we're not apostles and prophets in that sense. We don't, we don't author Scripture. We don't have their authority, as Paul said. He could say as an apostle in 1 Corinthians 14, what I write, they are the commandments of the Lord. Now, if I copy the New Testament and show it to you, I can say what I have written is the commandment of the Lord, but I can't be like the apostle Paul and take something that wasn't previously written in Scripture and say, there, that's the Lord's commandment. Paul could. We're not, we don't have their authority. And furthermore, we don't work miracles like the apostles did. Paul spoke in 2 Corinthians 12 about the signs of an apostle. Signs was a word for miracles. And what he's saying is, when I came around to Corinth, I produced the signs of an apostle. I had credentials. It's like a passport or a visa to go into a country. Where, where's your credentials? Paul had credentials to prove that he was an apostle. Not just everybody throughout the entirety of this New Testament age can work miracles. Otherwise, Paul's words were meaningless. We're not like the apostles in that sense. But when it comes to being witnesses for Jesus Christ and carrying the message of his death and his resurrection to the world, we are like the apostles. I take you back to Matthew's words in Matthew 28, verse 20. Matthew 28 and verse 20. Jesus said, beginning at verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The age is still going on right now. And it will be going on until Jesus comes again. And even though John wasn't martyred, he did die, and all of the twelve and the Apostle Paul are all in their graves, and they're waiting for Jesus to come again and call them out of their graves. But their work goes on, and Jesus said he would be with not only them, 
but with His church till the end of the age. The remaining work is ours. The whole world has not yet been evangelized. There are still unbelievers who haven't heard the gospel. And so we may not be able to do all that the apostles did, as I just said, but we are called to continue what they began in their work as witnesses to all the nations. That's the identity of the present-day witnesses. If you're a Christian, you're one of them. That's what you're called to be anyway. So that's the identity of the present day or the ongoing witnesses. What are the implications for us? Well, the implications I can sum up in this way. We represent Christ. We're all His servants. We bear His name. We are part of His body. And as such, we then are commissioned with the same task as the apostles. Not in the exact same way, but with the same task. And that means then that if they were obligated to be witnesses, so are we if we are his disciples. We are obligated as were the apostles. That means we have to engage in what we call missions. We were discussing missions in our, um, our um, elders meeting this past week. And we were talking about the fact that there are foreign missions, and that's what some people look at as missions. It's the only way they look at missions. But there's also home missions. It's where we live. We're called to bring the gospel to people around us. I've mentioned this before, I think, the church where my kids went to school. When you go into the church, you'd go out the same doors. And as you went out the doors there was a big sign above the door stretched across the the main doors to the church building. And as you went out, you read these words, you are now entering the mission field. It's a wonderful way to look at it. That's the idea. We are to engage in missions. And in doing that, we should follow the apostles' example. Look with me at Acts 4, verses 19 and 20. Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. We read that Peter and John answered and said to them, this was the uh, council, the Jews who had arrested them and had beaten them for preaching the gospel. And they answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. In other words, you told us not to preach. But we have to listen to God. Verse 20, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Probably no one who's listening to my words right now has been flogged for preaching the gospel. I haven't been. I've been a pastor for 30 years. I have not been flogged for preaching the gospel. But brethren, we need to be willing to follow the apostles' example. It was dangerous for them. As I said, almost all of them became martyrs. It is dangerous still at various places in this world. Not so dangerous where we live. And for that we are thankful to God. But it's still dangerous. It's dangerous because the cross is still an offense. It's dangerous because the resurrection is scoffed at no less today than it was in first century Athens. And it's dangerous because many people like to hear about forgiveness, but they don't like the assertion that they're guilty of sin 
that needs to be forgiven and that they should confess it. And it's dangerous because the need for repentance is not always a welcome message, even in the church, let alone the world. We bless God that the apostles and the first century church, the first generation church, did faithfully testify to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Within a few decades, Paul could write words like this, Romans 15, 19, From Jerusalem, roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And he wanted to go to Rome yet when he wrote those words, and even beyond Rome to Spain, he said. He also wrote in Colossians 1.23 about the gospel which you heard and which has been preached to every creature under heaven. They faithfully carried out their work as witnesses. It was obviously an overstatement that every creature under heaven had heard it. But as far as he could, they'd gone out and fulfilled the commission of the Lord Jesus. And that is what we are called to do yet today. There are, still me- there are more people who need to hear the gospel today than there were in the days of the apostles in the world, right? They're without Christ, and therefore they're without hope and without God in this world. And we are called to be witnesses for Christ. I'll just break that down into a couple things in, in, in conclusion. We're called to be witnesses for Christ during this present crisis. During this present coronavirus crisis, people around us are afraid. They see the things we see in the news and hear the things we hear, but they don't have the rock that we have. They need to hear about Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. And in these days, people around us, they just want to talk. I go out and walk in my neighborhood. It used to be hard to get people to say hello when they're walking on the same sidewalk and and face to face with you, to get them to look in your face and to even respond with a grunt. And now people on the other side of the street will say hello to you. And they'll wave and they'll smile. But be aware of these things, brethren. I heard from Al Mohler the other day that I think he got a statistic from Verizon. And that Verizon has said that in typical weekdays, in these recent weeks, the typical weekday, there are twice as many calls as there have been on recent years on Mother's Day's phone calls. Why? Because people want to talk. I heard about a telemarketer who said that not only are people answering the phones because they want to talk to someone, they're having conversations with the telemarketers. Brethren, this is our world right now. Be aware of that. There are people around us. You have something to tell them. Without going to seminary, you have all it takes to tell them about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. You have what people need to hear. Tell it. And the same is true about when this crisis is over. It's going to end, God willing, someday. 
We're in a world that, like the world that the apostles were in, is a world that is hostile to the gospel. It's not more hostile now than it was in the first century. It's hostile in different ways. During this crisis, we can be thankful that, in general, churches are being treated in the same way as other organizations. They don't want anybody to gather with groups of 10 or more. And for a while it was 50 or more. It was before that 250 or more. But in some places, yes, it's true. Churches or Christian organizations are getting singled out to a degree. You may have heard or read about the Samaritan's Purse in New York City setting up a hospital in Central Park, getting criticism from the mayor and others being, people being suspicious of them because of their fundamentalist Christian views. Yes, liquor stores are essential services to help people from uh, getting depressed and things like that. But churches are not essential services. I get it. I don't get that they think that way. I understand that the church is getting singled out in those ways. In some places, the criticism of Christians, meaning criticism by non-Christians of Christians, includes sneering and disparaging remarks. In places of influence, we're hearing warnings about homeschooling and the dangers of children being under the influence of authorities 24-7. What are they getting at? What, what are they getting at when they condemn people who supposedly don't believe in science? It's not just political speech. It's not just criticism of the president or the Republican Party, or political conservatives. That kind of speech is ultimately aimed at people who believe in things like creation from nothing, or that abortion is murder, or that homosexuality is sin, or that the Bible is true, or that sinners need to be saved, and that salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. It's what... David wrote about in Psalm 2. That's what it is. The leaders of this world joining themselves together against the Lord and His Christ. That's what it is. And so I leave you on this note, brethren, that the church of Christ needs to be ready for the way the world is after COVID-19. I don't know what that means. But whatever it means, that's what we need to be ready for. I'm not making predictions. Maybe it'll be better. I hope it will. I pray it will. But the church needs to be prepared. And the church needs to be prepared not by making sure to exercise our Second Amendment rights so that we are fully armed. That is not what I am saying. But we need to be prepared by being ready to proclaim the things that Jesus told the apostles to proclaim. The cross, the resurrection, repentance, and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all people in all nations. And may God give us the compassion and the grace, especially toward people who may be most hostile to us 
and to our message. As Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, that we might walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, making the most of the opportunity, and seeing that our speech is always with grace, seasoned with salt, that we may know how we ought to answer each one. And may God give us the commitment to do that, and the boldness and the strength. Here's another way that we're like the apostles, not unlike them. The apostles didn't possess those things natively. As Paul wrote, who is sufficient for these things? And he meant preaching the gospel. Who is sufficient for these things? He meant we aren't. He wrote, we are not sufficient of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And that is why Jesus told them in verse 49 in Luke chapter 24, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, and that's the Holy Spirit, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And that is what we'll hear about next time, God willing, the power. Well, let's pray that the Lord would write these things on our hearts. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel message, and above all, we thank you for the Lord about whom the gospel message is, Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day. We magnify him. We ask that you would grant us great measures of your Holy Spirit, that we might have more compassion for the lost, more of a sense of our obligation to take the gospel to the nations, and more of all the graces we need to open our mouths and tell about our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.